So it's a very cool thing in life when your kids turn out to be better than you are. Two of my heroes in the world are members of my own family. Some of you know our oldest son, Brian. His wife, Jennifer, and children are part of the church here. And Brian has always been one of my heroes. You know, I was a kid when he was born, so we grew up together. There was a day when he was 17, and he and I had been fussing under the basketball hoop, and we got into a little bit of a struggle. Karen sat us both down and said, look, She said, I cannot have two 17-year-olds in this house, so one of you is going to have to grow up. I think Brian has grown up into a really fine young man. He served in the military, and last couple of years in the military, he was tapped to serve in the old guard at Arlington Cemetery. Case on platoon, and day after day after day, there's a sergeant who helped work a team to rig those horses for those military funerals. Now he serves here, works at Nationwide Insurance, and serves as one of our leaders here in the church, faithfully serves on Wednesday mornings at 5.30, and the Gideon's Army has done that for years now. He's one of my heroes. Another one of my heroes is our youngest son, Brad. And he, uh, he and his wife, Melissa, and three kids live out in Zanesville. And they live as a real radical expression of the lordship of Jesus in their lives. They live a different life. They're part of the vineyard out there. But the biggest part of what makes them my hero is that every week he and another guy from the church, they just go out on the streets of Zanesville. And they just look for people to pray for. And it can be a homeless person or it can be an attorney going into the courtroom. It can be anybody. And they just approach people and talk to them about, could we pray for you? And they've seen amazing, amazing things happen because of it. They've seen healing. They've seen the power of God poured out in front of them. He's putting out a weekly email now that's just just blessing me beyond measure of the things that they've seen God do. He's a street fighter, you know. He's... He, he goes to the dark places where Jesus goes. He's one of my heroes. I think he may have learned some of his street fighting savvy when he was in kindergarten. may not be what you think. I used to take Fridays off instead of Mondays. And every Friday morning, Brad and I, when he was in kindergarten, did pretty much the same thing. His mom is a nurse, Karen's a nurse, and she would always like to work the midnight shift, and so she would always try to work Thursday nights because she knew I'd be home Friday morning to take care of Brad before he went to afternoon kindergarten. And so Brad and I had that Friday mornings every week together, and we'd, we'd do stuff. We'd hang out. Sometimes we'd go fishing, and but we would always end up at lunchtime doing exactly the same thing, and I was eating our lunch and playing Rampage. Rampage is a video game. It's probably like an Atari 2600 or something. So Sega or something really state of the art. 
Rampage, each guy was a monster, and you climbed up these buildings, and you pounded on them, and for every floor you destroyed, you got points. And so we would compete in this, and you know, I need to confess, I've, uh, I've always been really bad at video games. I've, I don't know. I, I guess I just don't practice enough. My kids have always been able to destroy me in video games, and now my grandkids can, so nothing much has changed there. But we'd play Rampage, and we'd, we'd just go pounding on these buildings, and we'd get points and points and points and try to out, outdo each other. And there's a feature of the game where if you wanted to, you could go pound on the other guy. Yeah, and when that happened, you know, you had a life band, so how much life you had left would would reduce. So when you got a punch in. So I'd always say to Brad, I said, Brad, let's just hit the buildings today. Let's not let's not beat on each other, okay? And and he'd say, okay, Dad. Somewhere along the line he'd turn on me. Start pounding on me and I I, I taking my you know what I'm talking about, Pat, don't you? you just, they turn on you. Start pounding on me. And my life band would start to disappear, go smaller and smaller and smaller. You got weaker and weaker and weaker as you stayed engaged in this war. Till just before you died, it would start to flash. I tell you all that because of the the ministry we've been engaging in here recently, both in the church and all the power dynamic that you see in the church recently, and then in particular the spiritual warfare we had to do this week in ministering to this situation with the fire. I got about this much life left. And now after this first service, it's flashing. Talk to some other pastors sometime, and they talk about detaching. They say, you got to detach, man. you got to stay one degree removed if you're going to survive. I've been in full-time ministry since 1979, and I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to do that. When you grieve, I grieve. When you hurt, I hurt. And so I'm just telling you all that this morning to say that as I bring this briefer message this morning, I'm going to be sitting in this chair, (laughs) and I don't think I'm going to be doing a lot of shouting. You're going to have to keep yourself awake. That's going to be your job this week, okay? I'm going to bring you all that I can, but you might have to... Every once in a while, reach over to the person next to you and pinch them to bring them back. It's a little bit ironic that I'm in this place, and, you know, I don't ever want to make this church about me, but I think there's a connection here. There's an illustration, at least, that because this week God called, called me long ago, several weeks ago, called me to speak this morning, teach on the subject of the power that we can receive from God by being still before him. It's not about the foot stomping and the hand raising and the shouting, but it's about 
God being our source of power that we receive by learning to become still in His presence. We've been talking about experiencing the power of the present, embracing, you know, the power of God that's in the moment. And uh, be giving you a couple of things so far in this series to, I hope, bring into your life that will help you to embrace the power of the moment and not miss the power of God in any moment, wherever you are, whatever you're doing. And um, today it's about the power of stillness. Ironic, isn't it? The psalm that Tony read for you not long ago, Psalm 46, contains that amazing verse, Be still and know that I'm God. And there it is. One of the things I love about this psalm is that the context of it is that it's one of those psalms of the sons of Korah, Tim. We visited that some time back when we talked about who the sons of Korah were. And I'm not going to go over that this morning. I just want to point out that the context of this psalm, because it looks like so many of the other psalms, right? It looks like one that David could have written, but it's not one that David wrote, and yet it contains the same sense of the exaltation of God and stillness before God that David teaches about in his psalms. For example, when he said, He leads me beside what? Still waters. And this just speaks to the integrity of the Scriptures. But in Psalm 46, verse 10, the psalm says, Be still and know that I'm God. Be still and know Him. Know that I'm God. This stillness, this word still comes from a Hebrew word, rafa, which means it means to give up. Let your hands go limp. It means to heap. You ever been in a slump before God, yes or no? That's stillness. You didn't know how to pray. You didn't know what to say. You couldn't find a song to sing. You couldn't find a verse to recite, but you were just a pile before him. Who knows what I'm talking about? That's stillness. That's stillness. And he said, in that stillness, in that level of abject surrender, is where you'll find God. Be still and know that I'm God. Rafa. I think it's worth mentioning that stillness is really a state of being, not simply the absence of doing. We think about still, it means I've got to stop doing everything, but it says, be still. And know that I'm God. Be still. This is a state of being, a stillness before God. Now it's true to achieve stillness, we need to we need to stop doing and get into a stillness, but then we can start doing, we can enter back into the fray of doing and remain still before the Lord because it's portable. So this stillness that we're being invited into to embrace the moment is it's really what helps us embrace the moment because we can carry it into whatever moment we have, no matter how busy it is. No matter how complicated it is, it becomes completely simplified in being still before the God of gods. If you think about what happened in the Garden of Eden when sin came into the world, our stillness before God was broken, wasn't it? I mean, there was this perfect, idyllic situation where humanity lived before God in fellowship with God, and so the longing we had for God was completely satisfied because we had fellowship with God. And then Satan came in, and said, did God really say? And then we decided, we decided, you know, I don't really need to pay that much attention to what God says. I got this. I can handle this. And something broke that day, 
And what changed was the result of that decision for humanity was no longer would we just live in that stillness and enjoy the garden, but that we would work sweat of our brow, that we would toil for our existence. And in that toiling, we stopped being still before God. And we've been toiling ever since. And so this invitation to be still and know that he's God is an invitation to come back to that. Stillness is a place of ultimate peace. Some of you long for peace, like me, right? You long for it. You have controversy raging in your heart. You have a war going on within you. You have relationships that are spinning out. You're trying to sort it out, and you seek peace. Stillness before God will bring peace. In verse 9 of the psalm, he says, He makes wars to cease to the ends of the earth. He makes wars to cease. Knowing that he's God brings peace. The Hebrews called it shalom. That's the word for peace. How many of you have heard that before? And it was a greeting. They would say shalom. Shalom. Peace. They were the first hippies. Shalom. It was the extension of a blessing. And it came from the name of God. One of the names of God. There are eight names of God in the Old Testament in Hebrew. And one of them is Jehovah Shalom. The Lord is our peace. And so by the character of God himself comes peace. And so when we know that he's God... We experience peace. Paul said it this way, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and petition, present your request to God. He said, Don't, stop fretting. He said, just get still before the, before the God of gods and, and give it to him. And it says, And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. There's peace. And I think we should notice also that stillness is the source of ultimate power. We need power in our lives, people. We are engaged in a struggle, yes or no? The Bible says that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers of darkness. And we're engaged in this. We are caught up in a battle. Satan wants your soul. And we're caught in a battle, and we need power for this battle. And once we come to know that he is God, we have access to his power. Everything changes. And that when we we come to know that he's God, not in hurriedness, but in stillness. A couple of weeks ago, I referenced, remember the prophet Elisha when he was being hunted by the Aramean king? Remember this? And he was with his servant. And they were surrounded by the army of the king that was after them. It looked like the jig was up. It looked bad. Chariots, warriors. They were about to be killed. But Elijah was so, so cool, wasn't he? He was so laid back. And his servant was freaking out. And Elisha said to his servant, he said, don't be afraid. He said, because those who are for us are more than those who are against us. And Elisha could see something that the servant couldn't see. What could he see? The armies of the Lord, the chariots, chariots of fire outflanking the armies that were against them. And he could see that. Why? Because he lived in a state of stillness before the Lord, and the Lord showed him things that were really there. And then he asked the Lord, please show my servant. Showed his servant, and the servant said, far out. <laughs> 
And then the battle was won. The battle was won. And I just wonder how many battles we lose because we don't get still before the Lord to see what's at our very disposal. David fought a battle with Goliath, yes? An epic battle, monumental battle. Where did he get that power to be able to stand up against that enemy and take him down with a slingshot? Where did he get that? Where did that power come from? It came from God. Where did he, how did he access the power? Where did he get that? Did he get that in the temple? No, was, David was never in the temple. This was prior to him being anything. Who was David when he took down Goliath? He was a shepherd boy. There was a war raging with the Philistines, right? There was a war raging with the Philistines, and Goliath is coming out. And for 40 days, he says, if you guys can send one person out here to take me, all of the armies of the Philistia will become subject to you. No one would go. Why? If you read that passage, it said the armies of Saul would not go out because they were the armies of Saul. But then David showed up because he was sent there by his father to take food to his brothers who were the real men of the family, right? David was just a little little scrawny shepherd boy had to stay behind, took food. He shows up and goes, what's going on? They said, well, here's what's going on. This big guy keeps coming out, and he says, none of us will go out. David says, well, what will be done for the man who takes him? They told him. He said, I'll do that. He gets an audience with Saul, and Saul goes, you can't go out. You're just a shepherd boy. He says, let me tell you about being a shepherd. He said, once, once there was a a lion who came and grabbed one of my sheep, and I not I went after that lion and I grabbed it by the hair and I killed it. This is a little scrawny. And he said, I've also been delivered from the paw of the bear. So he had something that nobody else had. And so Saul says, Alright, put on my armor and go. He puts on his armor, he's clanking around and stuff. He goes, I can't wear this stuff. I cannot go in the armor of man takes it off, and he goes out there with his slingshot. And he comes against Goliath. Goliath says, what am I, a dog that you send me, send a boy out here to fight me? David said, you come against me with sword and javelin and spear, but I come against you in the name of the living God whose armies you have defied. And today I will cut off your head, and I will feed the carcasses of your army to the birds of the air. Because he said, you have defied the living God. I come in the name of the Lord God. He charges him. He takes him down. He cuts off his head. Where did he get that, where did he get that power? He got that power out in the field as a shepherd keeping watch over the flocks in stillness before the Lord. That's where the power comes from. It doesn't come from the next great book on the Christian bookstore shelf. Read read the books. I'm all for reading the books, but I'm just saying, that's not the source of your power. Your power is in getting quiet before the Lord. What happens when we get still before the Lord in Christ is that our, our place in the intended created order is restored. See, when Jesus died and rose again for us, he made a way for us to be restored to our original intention, our original created purpose. And one of those is to have authority and have dominion over Satan. 
The power comes from that place. You know, Christianity is not the only religion, if you will. I hate to even call it a religion, but it talks about peace or stillness, I should say. And if you compare the pursuit of stillness with other religions, you see that Buddhism has its nirvana. That the goal of Buddhism is to achieve the state of nirvana. That if you look at Hinduism, one of its goals is to achieve a state of mashka. And in Judaism, one of the goals is to achieve a state of rafa, of being still. So you could look at other, and Islam even has this form of it, but if you look at the world religions, you see that, they, that each has its form of you need to become still. Now, in Buddhism and largely in Hinduism, what it is is it's a way to, to achieve a state of mind where you can cope with your circumstances, where you, and in some cases be detached from them. That's when you've achieved a state of perfection. But the difference between being a Christian and being a Buddhist is what the result of stillness is meant to be. Because you have to read the rest of the verse to understand that. Be still and know that I am God. This is the big difference. Be still and know that I am God. That stillness is not the goal. Stillness is not the goal. Stillness is the place where you can reach the goal to know God. To know that He's God. Other religions, stillness is the goal. That's the end of the road. The reason is because in those religions, there's nowhere else to go because nobody's home. There's nobody after the stillness. Stillness is the best that they can offer, and it serves as a substitute for what a person's heart really craves, and that is to know God. And as Christians, our stillness and surrender before God actually delivers us into his presence by the cross of Christ. The cross of Jesus Christ is meant to deliver us into relationship with God the ultimate source of peace and power. Does this make any sense to anybody? I'm not, in, I'm not trying to engage you into stillness so you can add something else to your spiritual list. Stillness is not a, an end in itself. Stillness is the place where you embrace the power of God in the moment and where the cross of Christ becomes more than a get-out-of-hell-free card, and it becomes a connection between you and the living God. Because at the center of the Christian reality is an epic battle. We're in it. There's no getting out of it. And you're in it whether you're a Christian or not. You're in it because you were born into it. Now, as Christians, we tend to grow a larger target on our backs because of our strategic nature in the world. But this epic battle in which you're engaged is a battle that you can win because it's already been fought for you by Jesus. The, the victory is already ours, but you have to access it and appropriate it to yourself. Otherwise, it's a potential victory. It's something that you can sing about but you don't know yet. How do you know it? Well, you know it by these things I've been talking about, and today, by creating a heart of stillness before the Lord. 
Now, maybe in another message, perhaps, I don't know, but I'll be able to teach on the subject. Okay, so how do I, you know, what do I kind of, what has to happen in order for me to get still before the Lord? But we're not doing that today. I just want you to long for the stillness today. I just want you to embrace the reality that that's where the power of God is accessed because that's where you know God. In Isaiah chapter 30, verse 15, the Bible says, This is what the Sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel, says, In repentance and rest is your salvation, in quietness and trust is your strength. Do you hear it? Getting still before the Lord. Being overcome by the power of His presence. That's such an encouraging thing, isn't it? In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. It sounds so encouraging on its surface there, but that's because I didn't give you the rest of it. The rest of the verse says, but you would have none of it. This was a charge against Israel. I offer you, he's saying, I'm offering you strength. I'm offering you repentance. I'm offering this to you, but you would have none of it. You have your own way. Why, I'll do it my way. I don't want to be one of those kinds of believers. There's only one kind of believer. I fear that this is where America is today. But we would have none of it. We have our own agenda. We have our own plan. We have our own situation, and we're in charge of it. And the parts that spin out of control, terrorists come and take down towers, and then we suddenly turn to God. I guess we couldn't handle that. And then a few months or a couple of years pass by, and we're right back where we were, that we would have none of it. We need to repent of that and and come before the Lord and say we understand that we can't do this and it's in stillness before you that we're going to receive this mighty power. I don't know if you have stillness in your life or not. I don't know if you've found that or have ever tried to embrace a sense of stillness before the Lord, but I, I just felt compelled today to throw it out there for you. And uh, hopefully someone will be intrigued enough by it to pursue it. Because at the end of the day, you don't need a tall, bald guy to tell you how to do what God calls you to do. You may benefit from a tall, bald guy pointing out what it is that God's calling you to do. But then just throw yourself at the feet of Jesus and say, would you show me how to do it? And you will find the Holy Spirit to be a remarkably better teacher than me. But you've got to do what he says. So there's a, there's a verse in this psalm that I completely missed in the first service. It's verse 4. It says, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. Early this morning as the sun was coming up, And I and a dear friend were out on the wall, walking the wall. And we stood 
over on the wall, you know where that little bridge is? And to me, every time I get there, I see the water gate of Jerusalem. I see that's where the water comes in every time. And every time I pray something along the line of let the living water of Jesus just pour into this place and then just meet us, carry away our sin, our brokenness, our disease, our doubt, carry it out to the dung gate out where the cross is. And this morning, I I hardly ever pray with anybody out on the wall. It's usually just very solitary, but just the way the Lord orchestrated something cool this morning, it happened. And so we were praying that and praying. And I was struck as we were praying with this stretch of real estate right here. And I was just praying how mystified I am by it, why I don't understand the geography of the Spirit. Why, when people come here, things happen in them, to them, with them that don't happen a few rows back. I don't know. I suppose it has something to do with the faith of the person who comes. But I saw, as we were praying, the pool of Bethesda up here. You know, that thing that stirred, and when people could get themselves to it, something cool happened. And I completely missed this in the first service. But as I was praying between services, I saw this. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. So if you're stirred by stillness, the desire to create, to generate the being of stillness before the Lord and the power that comes from that, I'm just going to invite you to come and Get in the river.